Vegcast. Hey there, we're back on the scene. Vegcast. Bringing you Vegcast 115. Vegcast. A full menu from first to last. Vegcast. Yes, it truly is another full menu of vegetarian podcastry. And I know I'm always saying that, but listen to our lineup this time out. We have a feature interview with Sue Coe, the legendary painter and graphic journalist uh, who has depicted animal abuse and animal suffering uh, in ways that really get under people's skin and get into their heads. We're going to be talking about that as well as uh, the issues surrounding uh, the animal abuse industry with her. But we also have... Uh, Coming up, a science fact about the psychological effect of killing animals that it has on different populations. We also will have a a tune for you from Dream Awake along with a note about vegan rock, which if you haven't uh, heard of it, you will now. Uh, That's not all, though. We also have a little note coming up about a new book that is... I suppose related to Easter, which is coming up, and we also will be telling you about a new vegan product you may find in your local supermarket. So please, I implore you to sit back, relax, and crank up that MP3 player as we deliver to you this 115th episode of Veg VegCast is sponsored by Tofurky, making delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soy since 1980. And we're going to go right into our interview with Sue Ko, certainly uh, somebody that I have followed for a long time. Uh, I think a lot of uh, listeners will, uh, will recognize and appreciate uh, the greatness of Sue Ko as an artist, as a journalist, and as a thinker, and we will uh, be talking with her. Unfortunately, it is over a phone line that uh, was compromised uh, on my side by a, a bad setup, so uh, I was tinkering with the uh, the input and uh, got a dropout in her first response, so uh, after that, I basically turned up the uh, the input and it uh, has an echo that I have to apologize for. There's a kind of a reverb sound. I'm going to ask you to just pretend that we are in a large stadium having this uh, interview, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to get past that and hear uh, some of the important things that Sue Co has to say as we go into this interview, and then uh, pick that up after the first question uh, because I was busy fiddling with the knobs and trying to get that right. So apologies to Sue Ko, uh, but we did have a good interview uh, once we got going, so let's go into that right now. Okay, joining us now on VegCast is artist Sue Ko, who has a book out called Cruel, uh, Bearing Witness to Animal Exploitation. Sue Ko, I wanted to say welcome to VegCast. As you were, you were saying, you're able as an artist to go places that, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to go with a camera. And nowadays uh, there's these ag-gag laws where uh, the meat industry is trying to keep people from being able to witness and being able to share uh, what goes on. 
there. So I was wondering if was that uh, did that make you say you know I'm going to go a certain number of places, try to cover the general landscape of this and put it in a book, or was it just things that you've done over the years that started adding up and you said I want to focus this into one one book that I'm going to put out. I mean, how did that come about? Well, there's two books, really. The first book was Dead Meat, which was 20 years ago. And this book is more of an updated book of Dead Meat. Uh Dead Meat was where I went from slaughterhouse to slaughterhouse. And I was always up front um, about, I want to draw in a slaughterhouse. I'm an artist. And so much of this is an invisible process. You can see all the drawings I'm doing. Nothing will be stolen from you unless you approve of the drawings. This, of course, is... You know, doesn't give one the the um, you know the expose ideas of you know a camera hidden video, but that's what I do. I don't do video. I don't do photography. I do drawing, and I think I can explain quite a lot in drawing because there's the intimacy of time I'm spending with people that normally aren't asked any questions about anything because they're invisible. So. That's, I always carry a sketchbook and I've managed to get into places. Um, the air gag laws are an appalling indictment of, of the industry. Um, we should be going the opposite way. We should be having cameras in every slaughterhouse and it should be completely exposed. And also to protect working people as well. Because in a way, without dying, they are treated as dirt. You know, they're non-union, most of them. They're working in appalling conditions, dangerous, very dangerous conditions. And we can end all this today. We can end it by not consuming these products. End of story. Um, We don't have to contribute to the violence of this. But I've never said that in the work, or I very rarely said that. I'm not telling people how to think. I'm recording what exists. Let people make up their own mind. And I think the point I was getting to before is I used to believe when I was much younger that my emotional response to animals screaming and being slaughtered, if I explain that to people, that would be sufficient for them to change. Now I don't believe that. I believe that um, animal manipulation and production of meat has to be made illegal. People will not willingly move to that moral place. A lot will, a lot will, but not fast enough. Okay. So we need to create a body of people who are vegans, who are politically active, to put this on the agenda. Um, So you know, I have changed somewhat with all the experiences of drawing and painting animals and getting into a different... I mean, I live in the middle of farming, so I'm not... I mean, I'm a few feet away from how animals are treated. I can see it every day. It's not... I'm not living in a city, just... It's not an abstract thing. And I can hear the cows crying when their calves are taken, taken away. I can see in the winter the calf chained in deep snow and ice, never having a lick from their mothers, just chained in isolation. These are replacement habits. 
And this is the milk industry, the dairy industry that people generally do not understand. They just don't get it. Milk, cheese, same as eating meat. Same as. Right. And they don't get it because it's not explained to them, it's not shown to them. And as animal activists, we're constantly negotiating for the lesser of two evils. You know, we shouldn't be. We should be going for the big vision, go vegan. That's the big vision. <laughs> and creating a political mass. You know, it only took the Tea Party 10% to practically destroy the country. So I think, you know, if we have 10%, then we can change. We can change the situation. And if you read, I don't know if you've ever read this book, but the Abolition of the Slave Trade Act. Uh, no. Oh, it's interesting, because people say, well, how did this happen? How did we get rid of the human slave trade? And it says so right in the Abolition of the Slave Trade Act, which is online for free, you know, on the British government website, it explains exactly how the slavers were paid off. And they were paid off over the years. Now, we already, as taxpayers, subsidize meat. So we can just pay them off another way. They're only doing it for money. So right. we pay them off to produce different sorts of, of food. It wasn't a moral um, in a moment of enlightenment. That was part of it in the abolition of the slave trade act. Yes, people were aware of it. Um, but you know that quote, someday my ship will come in. Have you ever heard that before? Sure. Um, that came about when every person in England, every person had a few pennies in the slave trade. Even the poorest. So someday my ship will come in, refers to the gamble, because so many ships were lost, that everyone was invested in it. And yet they still managed to end it. And that's the same um, with our animal slavery is that everyone's invested in it, but we can still change it. Because it's only about profit. Well, that's a very, uh, you got a very a big picture vision uh, that we, uh, we're going to change the general moral behavior uh, by changing the law rather than vice versa. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it does sound compelling. Uh, and I'm just... Uh, it seems to me that you're you're still working as a as a painter and as a, a propagandist almost to yes. to change people's attitudes. In the meantime, I mean, yes. uh, we do both, but we don't get confused with consumer choice. Animal rights is consumer choice, which says far too much of because animal activism reflects the conservative nature of our culture. Right. Right, so everything comes down to um, modification of capitalism, right? Right. Instead of a broader vision of how can we actually end this, we don't have 50 more years of this. So right. we need to speak, we've had 200 years of um, welfare type legislation constantly manipulating cage types or whether horns should exist on cattle or not. We've done that. And believing somehow people are going to morally change, which I do believe they can. 
but not fast enough. This can take generations upon generations upon generations, and we possibly, in terms of climate change, have 50 years before this can't be undone now. We need to stop it, like it now, <laughs> yesterday. Right. Okay. Well, so the uh, just, I mean, I can see the the imperative that uh, you're trying to uh, put forward here, and how the book uh, kind of fits into that. Um, and but as an artist, I wonder, do you, uh, you know, are, are you constantly looking for uh, a way to deliver a message that is going to try to uh, affect people's minds the most, or are, do you also, I mean, the stuff that you create is, um, you know, it's beautiful in its way, and you, you come up with ways to make things aesthetically appealing at, at the same time that they're repellent. Um, and I'm wondering how much of that is just a, a, a kind of a, an aesthetic uh, approach that you have and how much of it is, is a calculated attempt to, to try to reach a place in people that is going to help to change minds. Well, before art can be a weapon, it first has to be art. So the level of technique has to be convincing enough that people will be brought into looking at it. So one can't just keep shouting out messages if the technique is not of sufficient interest or, you know, technique is a test of sincerity. So if I spend two months on a painting, then I expect you to look at it for more than two minutes. And that works. People will be drawn into the craft, whether it's a woodcut or etching or lithograph or painting. Right. And they can see the different levels of it and then begin the, the um, as you say, message. But I'm suspicious of messaging because I don't know the answers. Many times when I draw, you know, like I've, I've heard about the gas chambers now, which will be huge for a hog uh, killing. Um, you know, they're put in these CO2 chambers. It's more curiosity on my part. Well, how does that work? How can I show that in art? How can I share that knowledge I found out with people? You know, like chickens being killed um, by compression chambers. Right. Um, which is all about less labor. To the industry, less labor, more profit. So if they can put six hogs in the chamber at a time, it's not just a single line system, it's six at a time, or eight at a time, less labor. Right. So I don't really know about that. So I've got to research it and I've got to find out and then I've got to think, well, shouldn't people know about gas chambers? Shouldn't they know about this? Because I don't know about it. So then I try and put it in the work or what happens with foot and mouth where millions of animals are buried alive. Um, shouldn't I find out about that and then share that with people? And with sharing it with people, I meet the meat industry, where they'll see my work in a gallery or even a museum sometimes, and they'll say, well, that's not quite right. And I'll say, well, what do you mean that's not right? And then they'll show me why it's not right. So when you make art, you're making it, it's a collaboration. Art doesn't happen until the viewer says it happened. I can think I'm an artist all I like, but until someone's looking at that work and, and feeling it and looking at it and being curious about it, 
it doesn't matter if it's what I think, it matters what they think. Um, so it's more about a dialogue. You know, with meat packers or with anyone I've drawn, they can have their portrait. You know, I'll give you the portrait I'm drawing. I'm not going to take this away and make it into something else. Uh-huh. I'm not going to make it look bad. It's the economics that's evil. Not you. It's the economic system that's wrong. Not you. You're a pure human being in this horrible job. So yes, you can have the portrait. Yes, you know, if you like it, you can have it clean do one of your kids or whatever they, you know, want. <laughs> I'm happy to. So it's less about the message and more about me being educated and then in turn sharing that with other people. Right. But there, there is certainly a stylistic concern, as you said, you want people to, to look at it for a certain amount of time and look at it as, uh, yes. in a certain way, that allows it to, to touch them. I, I wonder, are you, do you, did you develop this style just as like a, a way that you had to go about painting things that were not being depicted elsewhere, or was there any kind of, you know, I, acknowledgement of that these are going to go out into the world, so I want to, without necessarily uh, bringing a message per se, but with a certain amount of awareness of how they're going to be perceived. Absolutely, because what I do is reportage, generally. Reportage is keeping a narrative depiction of reality. So, you know, many artists now are doing, um, you know, there's one in the Armory Art Show now of a pig that's been taxidermed and tattooed. Well, that would be like me putting a live pig in a gallery and slaughtering the pig. Because that's supposedly against hog slaughter, which is absurd. So I don't do high-concept art. It's, it's very clear that what I'm trying to do is um, a sort of visual journalism. But it's not like I'm not involved with it. I am the collateral of the journalism. You know, when I go in those places, I am the collateral. I'm me in those places. So it's not like this is a machine recording that, it's me interacting with the people. So it's called, um, I call it, you know, it's like a social realism. Right. That I'm absolutely choosing that form and technique because it's a type of journalism. You know, my forebears would be Hogarth. So those are directly the people I'm looking at. that did commentary about society. You know, I'm not showing false humanism. I'm not showing our victory over the darkness. It don't, I don't do, you know, if I was in the days of the Pope, I mean, there's still these days of the Pope, unfortunately, but way back, I wouldn't be doing the resurrection. You know, I'd just be stuck on the crucifixion because that's the stage we're in. Right. The resurrection was never appealing to me because it wasn't real. So as an artist, you know, there's no vegan world for me. Even when I see a beautiful lamb or a piglet, I can't feel for a second that joy because I know what's coming around the corner. So to me, I live in that reality and there's no happy sun, sunrise. 
of a resurrection. It's my job as an artist to depict what's going on now. Okay, that's the world you live in as an artist. I'm hoping that you're not saying that, uh, you know, as a vegan, as somebody whose eyes are open, you can never experience that that general joy because that that sounds very uh, sounds bleak, and it would turn people away from veganism if they heard that. <laughs> no, I disagree with you. I don't agree. I okay. think people are grown ups, and I think they need to hear the bad news. Right. <laughs> and you can be a vegan, and you must, you know, you must take responsibility. And it might not change a thing in the long run. It might, and it probably won't. But you need to do this, not for your next step. You need to do this now. I mean, I can't really dress this up. That's not my job. That might be someone else's job, where you're going to become disease-free, blonde, and thin if you become a vegan. That's right. not my job. <laughs> my job <laughs> is to show the situation as it is now. Right. And yes, there is joy and empowerment in being vegan, but I'm saying that every time I look into the beauty of an animal's face, yeah. I get such an intense feeling. Um of what that animal's going to face, that, you know, opening a door and a level of consciousness that cannot be closed. And for our generation, there is no relief. But for the next generation, yes, there might be. You know, so when I talk to students, I ask them, do you want the happy vegan talk? (laughs) You know, where you go meet free Monday, yeah. Or do you want, we need to do this right now, <laughs> talk. <laughs> and they go, oh, we want both, because they're American students. <laughs> uh, we're about running out of time, but uh, I just wanted to touch on, when you talk about the feeling that you have looking uh, at an actual animal, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's something that you're, you're trying to get across, because your, your art has a lot of... Uh, you know, it depicts animals very individually uh, and kind of helps you to, the viewer, to kind of step into those shoes. Um, and in that way, uh, the, the whole, the, w- the way that it is, I keep coming back to the, the concept of bringing a message or what, uh, trying to elicit a certain response. And it seems that you are very concerned in actually breaking through a kind of intellectual Response to get to where the viewer will actually feel that to actually touch that and awaken perhaps uh, something that they're they're not trying to uh, to recognize in themselves and that's um, kind of ties in with the Hogarth thing and the whole that whole tradition of uh, almost cartooning uh, which it would be strange to call your work cartoons or cartoonish. But, but it does use some of those uh, devices from the cartoon tradition as well as the social realist tradition. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if that is part of the, the objective to kind of find a way past, a, a way to do art that, that uh, is going to engender a different response than people usually bring when they just come and look at a painting and say, oh, that's pretty. Um, well, the history of art is not making art that looks pretty. The history of art is um, about social justice. And 
when you're a part of that, you know, I'm part of this social justice movement, so I'm an artist that's part of the social justice movement too. And you can't be too far ahead of the social justice movement, otherwise people won't get it. You can't be too far behind because that, um, it's pandering. So you just, as an artist, as a culture worker, you just have to be on the edge of maybe pushing it a bit, uh-huh. um, people's awareness, and also listening, you know, because what's really good about doing visuals is it goes out there, my work goes out there almost immediately. So I can tell if, if it's working or not. I know what works. Right. And um, it's been tested all the time. I can tell, you know, when people respond. And it's that little vibrating filament that can figure out, oh, that works, I'm going to do more of those. Or that's not working at all. And usually you have to let the content create the form. You have to let the content of the work speak. So the animals are speaking to us all of the time. They're speaking to us, they're crying to us. They're crying for their own liberation. And we listen, and they're they're our responsibility to, they're the client. How far have I represented the client in this artwork? Right. Well, it's a, (laughs) it's a big, it's a big task, so uh, we're going to uh, remind people about the book itself, Cruel, Bearing Witness to Animal Exploitation. It's from OR Books, and uh, obviously, you know, people get done listening to this. That would be good if they go get that book and share that with people. Is there any other, I mean, what would you want uh, somebody other than that to, to do uh, immediately, uh, say if they are vegan or if they aren't vegan, what what would you uh, you know? What's like the imperative to get going on right now? Imperative is to avoid all animal products, go vegan, and make other vegans. And you can do that by telling them the hard truth. That it's so urgent that we must do this. We must do this now for. Any future of this planet, we need to move away from animal agriculture into plant-based agriculture. Well, that's uh, I can't argue with that, and uh, it is uh, sometimes amazing how hard it is to get that basic concept across to people, even those that are out there lamenting uh, everybody dragging their feet about doing something about climate change, and uh, many of those same people are. I see Yeah, they 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 won't. You know, they recognize how urgent that is, but not urgent enough for them personally to change their diet. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a big uh, you know it's a big thing to, to change. And I have well, to say, Vance, listen to me now. In all the large animal organisations, I'm not seeing this message very clearly. Uh-huh. Are you? Well, no. I mean, there's a problem in in general messaging. I would agree. I mean, 90% of it is about cage sizes, meat-free Monday. This isn't the 1960s, okay? Right. So I'm not... I'm saying, what I'm saying is, oh, we're the leaders, or we're vegan. But you... I don't think you can go vegan. Hmm. That's what I'm saying. So 
When I started out, this is with Dead Meat 25 years ago, I give these talks about animal suffering, slaughterhouse, because I'm going vegan right now. Now the questions I get are, is it okay to eat free-range meat? <laughs> right. This yeah. is what I'm getting now. So I'm suggesting, you know, this is a huge failure in messaging. Is there anything that really makes you hopeful, or are you basically just slogging away trying to get this message out through, through your paintings and your books and uh, just waiting for the next generation to be able to, to no, see the fruits of your labor? It's not quite like that. I feel joy when I look at animals. And without animals, I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't have been able to survive what I've seen. I just wouldn't. I mean, it's animals that I live with and animals whose spirit helps me. Um, so I feel joy. I just feel also absolute terror for them right. and their fragility. And I feel the human desire for power and control over others is such a, a damaging aspect, you know, um, to our species. And I feel whatever the bad news is, we need to take responsibility and stop killing other animals. We're just an animal ourselves. Just stop it. It's so easy. Right. It's not like I'm asking anyone to like climb Everest or you know, walk a hundred miles on nails. Sorry, my right. <laughs> It's so easy to go vegan, and it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful thing where you're not participating in it anymore. You know, you've removed yourself from that. Right, right. So I just agree with you, that is the baseline. Start going vegan, then we can debate um, what's the next step. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up there. Uh, but Suko, I really appreciate your patience uh, with me with the, the technical issues here. And I wanted to just basically thank you for being on VegCast. Thank you very much.
eyes Try to see me on the mask of lies Do it we've seen each other since the merging of our lives Wanna penetrate through the real Musicians. They will be headlining the fifth annual Vegan Rock up in Toronto, a concert slash bake sale fundraiser for the Toronto Vegetarian Association. And if you're anywhere in that area around April 6th, that's when Vegan Rock will be this year. Uh, you might want to head over there and check that out. We'll have more information about that in the VegCast show notes. And uh, right now, before we go into the science fact, I also just wanted to tip you to another uh, media entity, which is a book that is uh, very pertinent with Easter coming up in uh, a couple days as we go to press, so to speak, with Easter, obviously a big Christian holiday, and I know we have uh, a good many Christian listeners to VegCast. This is a book called A Faith Embracing All Creatures, uh, addressing commonly asked questions about Christian care for animals. Uh, It goes into uh, making a Christian case for veganism, essentially, uh, starts off with Carol Adams discussing Genesis and the concept of dominion and uh, basically going into uh, various objections uh, that Christians often come up with for not going vegan. And this actually explains why uh, veganism is completely consistent uh, with the uh, philosophical underpinnings of that religion. And uh, if you have any interest in that topic area, as I do, I would encourage you to check that out, A Faith Embracing All Creatures. It's from Cascade Books. It is edited by Trip York and Andy Alexis Baker, and we'll have a link to that also in the show notes. And now we are going to go straight away right over to the science. science. 
Our science fact for VegCast 115, meat workers prone to violence, expert says. Uh, this is from the site fizzorg.com, uh, writing up a study from Central Queensland University. And let me read the lead of this to you. Meat workers are more inclined to commit acts of violence. New research by Flinders University Animal Studies expert Dr. Nick Taylor has found a study involving researchers from Central Queensland University examined the link between attitudes towards animals and propensity for human-directed aggression among two primary industry cohorts, farmers and meat workers. So let's uh, just step out of that uh, quote for a moment to note that what we're comparing here are two populations, both of which are committed to uh, using animals as commodities. So in this study, they apparently did not include a cohort that does not already uh, view animals as commodities, as things to use for one's personal profit. But Within that, uh, here we go back into this, uh, meat workers had a significantly higher propensity for physical aggression, anger, and hostility than farmers, with those from the meat processing cohort tending to display more negative attitudes to animals. Uh, it continues, attitudes to animal welfare among the meat worker group largely depended on the type of work participants were engaged in, with those working in the boning room having lower average scores than those working on the kill floor. Other variables, including income, education, and pet ownership, had no significant effect on the two groups' pet propensity for violence or attitudes towards animals. However, 76% of farmers reported having a pet compared with only 54% of meat workers. And another finding was that female meat workers were found to have higher propensities for aggression, particularly verbal and physical aggression, than male meat workers and all the farmers. And uh, this is a quote from Dr. Taylor. Most of the current literature on the impact of meat work employment focuses solely on the male experience, but our findings show women are just as vulnerable to the physical and emotional effects of the job. So this is an area in desperate need of further investigation. Dr. Taylor said the meat worker group also displayed more, quote, utilitarian attitudes, unquote, towards animal welfare and due to their occupations viewed animals as commodities. Um, and let's just note, first of all, that uh, we have covered this topic before uh, on VegCast 83. If you haven't heard that one, we have a whole feature interview with Dr. Amy Fitzgerald, who uh, did a study that found that communities where slaughterhouses are and where people are employed at slaughterhouses have higher rates of violence within the community uh, than other places. And so there, there has been uh, plenty of this done, but I also want to point to the uh, very premise here that uh, being involved with the violence toward animals, that 
undergirds our entire food system, being personally involved with it is recognized as having deleterious effects on one's psyche. And uh, the conclusion of the article, in addition, Dr. Taylor said propensity for aggression scores among meat workers were similar to some reported by incarcerated populations, suggesting the constant exposure to violence within meat processing plants could cause psychological damage and lead to higher propensities for aggression. Quote, further research with this population is urgently needed to ascertain the potential damaging psychological effects of being employed in the industry, not only for the individual and the community they live in, but for the animals they come into contact with. As this is an area of interest to both policymakers and the public, more research is needed to unmask the multiple issues associated with animal processing. Now, I'm not so sure how much we need to learn about the terrible psychological effects uh, that this has on animals when the animals are being killed. I think maybe the uh, solution there would be not to kill the animals, and you might then uh, remove some of those psychological effects. But more to the point, there is more research needed on this, I would agree. Uh, we have seen some of it. There's more of it coming in. It's, it's basically a no-brainer. It's completely logical that the more these people have to uh, perform this completely gratuitous, unnecessary violence, uh, which becomes necessary to them, largely because they're taking a job that people generally just don't choose because it's something they would like to do. Uh, the more that that happens, the more that these people are in this, the more of a bad effect on their psychology it has. And I would put it to you that uh, it's not going to be confined just to those people and those communities. It has a ripple effect outward in our entire society. And it, uh, the whole institution of treating animals as commodities, raising them as food, and uh, dispatching them in acts of violence that humans are forced to participate in uh, is going to have an overall bad effect on our culture and I think that uh, we can see some of the symptoms of that. It would be nice to be able to scientifically tease out which of those are uh, exactly causally related and which might not be uh, and that is certainly an area for future research that we will hope to report to you here on the Science Okay, before we go, uh, Turtle Island Foods uh, has re-upped as, uh, for the next sponsorship cycle as official VegCast sponsor, and we couldn't be happier. Uh, we've had a few different sponsors in the past, and I've sometimes felt that it wasn't a perfect fit. I do feel like this is a perfect fit uh, because I love Tofurky products, and I eat uh, plenty of them, and I'm always interested to know what the new things that they have coming out. And here is one now uh, that we're going to tell you about, which is Tofurky Artisan Sausages. Uh, and Tofurky wants me to let you know that Tofurky has introduced three new flavors to its category-leading sausage line. And uh, if you've had Tofurky Sausages, uh, you know that they already have uh, some great ones. I particularly uh, love the Italian sausage. I haven't tried these, but I'm going to describe them uh, using this. Uh, the words that I have here on this paper. These are uh, andouille sausages, spinach and pesto, and chicken apple. The andouille is a spicy Cajun flavor with red and poblano peppers. 
And there's also the spinach and pesto and chicken apple. These are made in small batches on the customized equipment that allows the veggies, apples, and spinach to go through gently, making a delicious and juicy vegan sausage. And like all Tofurky products, these are based on organic, non-GMO soybeans. So uh, you might want to go to your local supermarket and check those out if they have them. And if they don't have them, say, get me some of those new Tofurky sausages, will you please? And uh, then when they come in and they say, thank you for uh, recommending these, you can say, don't thank me, thank VegCast. Of course, they won't know what you're talking about, But it'll be, you know, our little joke there. Anyway, that about wraps up the word from our sponsor this time out. It also wraps up VegCast 115, and we are out of here. That is VegCast 115, and I want to thank Sue Ko for talking with us and, of course, for her patience uh, with the uh, technological setup here. also want to thank Dream Awake for uh, giving us Blue Sky to play on VegCast, and uh, I want to thank Cascade Books for a faith embracing all creatures. And I want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and subscribing to VegCast. And until next time, get out there and live like you need it. VegCast!